This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So we're here tonight with John Kelly. Well, at least it's tonight in California, and John is joining us from Australia. And we're going to be discussing and exploring questions around the numerical discourses of the Buddha. Uh, John, I understand that you were involved in the editing of Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation of the Anguttara Nikaya that was published by Wisdom Publications a few years ago. Would you give us an idea of what your involvement entailed, how you came to work on this project? Sure. Um, I'll start with telling you how I came to work on the project, and then I'll tell you what was involved. But I think it was back in about... 2004, which is shortly after I had retired from full-time work and my wife and I were on our way moving to Australia, um, I had heard that Bhikkhu Bodhi was working on a complete translation of the Anguttara, uh, which is something that people have been a week, eagerly awaiting for a long time. So essentially, I just decided to write uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi a letter. He didn't know me from the bar of soap, but... I just was presumptuous enough, and I just asked him if there was anything at all I could do to help him. Um, but, you know, even though that does sound presumptuous, I had been working on studying Pali myself since about 2001, self-study, and felt I had enough minimal Pali expertise to be use useful. And also I knew that from my um, previous job, you know, working with computers for many, many years, I had a lot of fine attention to detail and those skills might be useful in just, you know, helping him in whatever way I could. Um, and at that time, he had uh, not jumped right on board with doing the Anguttara because it, uh, Wisdom had asked him to do that wonderful little book uh, in the Buddha's words and he was working on that. And so he said that I could uh, help him out by reviewing drafts of that. And, you know, clearly that was a test. He was trying me out because he, he really didn't know me at all at that stage. So, you know, that turned out to be a satisfying and successful project. And he was happy to take me on as it in an assistant role on the Anguttara. So what did my involvement entail? It was quite a lot of, a lot of things, really. Um, as uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi was... Um, Working, working through his initial drafts, he would send them to me as he completed each Napata or, or book, like the Book of Ones, Book of Twos, etc. Um, and then I would laboriously go through checking each of the, uh, that translation against each of the three main Pali editions that he was working with. Uh, that was the Burmese, the Sri Lankan, and the PTS. And if you're familiar with the Anguttara, you'll see these referred to in the footnotes a lot, the, uh, a reading in B-E-C-E -E or E-E. -E. And as I was doing that, uh, then I would perform some, you know, basic English grammatical and spelling editing, though 
I realized, you know, since it was all going to wisdom publishers, editors, that wasn't the most important thing, but it's good to, you know, send them as clean a document as possible. I would check that the English matched the Pali. Uh, very occasionally, you know, a, a sentence or even a complete paragraph of Pali would have been accidentally skipped over, which is quite understandable when you think about the huge amount of texts that Bhikkhu Bodhi was working through. And, you know, he just sort of missed something and I would you know, tell him and then he would fix that up. I would, um, you know, check that he had noticed the different Pali variants in the three different editions that they were correct. I would um, check that, you know, commonly repeated Pali words and phrases, uh, you know, those, you know, sorts of things that come up all the time that they were being rendered consistently throughout. Um, and some was different. On one occasion, he translates it one way when on other occasion, he translated it another. Um, you know, usually he would go back to his original translation, but sometime he would say, now I think I'd rather stick with this newer translation now. So my job is going back on all the previous things looked at and changing that wherever that occurred um, and things like that. Um, also, you know, as sometimes he would change certain renderings, particularly as this project, you know, did go on for a, quite a number of years. And, you know, his, his thoughts would change about how he changed renderings. And so, I, you know, maybe of a whole phrase and I have to go back and look for that whole phrase and change it in the earlier, uh, earlier documents. Um, so, you know, here, my computer skills are put to good use. It's really nice to hear um, some of the details like this because as readers of it, of these texts, we, um, I'm not sure we always appreciate, I mean, we recognize this is a lot, this is a big book, you know, this is right. so much effort goes into getting a really good translation of these texts. I know when I'm reading the, um, the suttas, um, these discourses of the Buddha, I often feel a deep sense of gratitude for the, the lineage of translators that have been caring for these teachings and bringing them into um, a form where they are accessible to the culture at the time. So that, that line of translators can go all, the, go, go all the way back to the original reciters of the text, of people mm -hmm. who um, you know, nurtured these texts. And now, you know, to take them, all that, that, that history and to present them in a way that we can read is quite remarkable. I remember yeah. when I started reading the, um, the, the numerical discourses uh, about 30 years ago, the translations were much more difficult to read. The English was, ar not, was an archaic kind of English. Yeah, yeah, that is definitely true. The, um, you know, the Pali, the original Pali text translations were done, most of them were done a long time ago. So um, there were definite Victorian archaisms in there. Uh, plus, you know, they were translated by people who were not practicing Buddhists. These were, you know, Protestant linguists bringing their own um, uh, mindset to, to it. And so, you know, didn't really uh, 
have the necessary things to uh, translate it in the in the clearer way that we have now. But of course, you know, without their initial work, it would be so much harder to get the great translations we get now. But um, you know, just getting back to your point too, the gratitude that we all should have for Bhikkhu Bodhi is immense because he is a very, very thorough. Um, person and he really, you know, made a huge effort to get his translation as uh, good as possible. Um, just quickly, a couple of other things that I helped him do on the task was like compiling an ongoing draft of the glossary of Pali words, which, you know, eventually included in the finished publication at the back there. Uh, I helped put in the PTS page numbers so that he didn't have to bother about that check consistent sutta numbering in each napata and each bhaga and these are ch changed in some instances from what the pts edition had because you know he realized that sometimes they had broken up the suttas incorrectly or you know combined ones that shouldn't be combined uh helped him compile the initial drafts of appendices one and two that you had there on expanded parallels and composite numerical suttas and help the table of contents of each Napata and the index of proper names and so on and so on. So, you know, in essence, really, it's just to help Bhikkhu Bodhi manage all the different electronic versions of all these multiple drafts that were going on. And I wanted to offload from him as much as possible, you know, much of the sort of tedious scut work involved in a project of this magnitude. So, um, you know, I was able to do that. I had the time. I was recently really retired. And you can imagine this gave me just tremendous satisfaction knowing uh, you know, how hard it was for him, particularly with his ongoing headaches. So, uh, it was a great joy working on this project. And uh, I feel like I got a lot more out of it than, than I put into it too. Well, I know we're really happy to have it. Um, we've been doing a four-year study of the numerical discourses. In fact, uh, every year we've been taking um, a different book. We did three years with the middle-length discourses, um, three years with the um, uh, connected discourses, and now we're doing the numerical discourses just a bit more slowly to savor it, and we'll do it in four years. And oh, good, good on you. I think that's wonderful that you spend so much time with this material. Well, how, many, how many years have you been on the Anguttara now? We've completed one year and we have a couple of um, local groups, one that meets in the morning and one that meets in the evenings. And then we have one online group. So, uh, so we have a few different groups so that they can be really small group discussions. My orientation is not so much academic. My orientation is, is reflective so that we read them and then uh, discuss them together to see what touches us in, in our own lives. What, um, mm. what, how do we understand or interpret the significance or meaning of these teachings? Lovely. Um, I was wondering just a technical question because you, um, you, you spoke a little bit about the numbering. And yep. I have to admit, sometimes it is not easy to find the numbers between different translations. Like if I'm looking at the Polytext version or if um, there's a Poly uh, 
poly version that has a number from a quote somewhere that I tried to look up. Can you give us a, um, a brief orientation to the numbering system? Because this translation does have numbers, um, the, the sutta numbers are different. Well, um, you know, it basically has numbers of the suttas just sequentially within each nipata, you know, for example, you know, 3.65, the 65th sutta in the third nipata. Um, now, sometimes in the PTS, they, as I said, they didn't have, a, didn't break the suttas up in exactly the same way. Uh, and so when Bhikkhu Bodhi, you know, saw the need for changing it, he would. I mean, mostly this is in fairly uh, minor cases, uh, but I do appreciate that it can be confusing. But if, you know, later on uh, you ask me about the um, software, uh, uh, the website I've been involved in, Sutta Central, this is a great tool for helping sorting out those numbers because it always shows both numbers. Where, where there are different numbers in the PTS, it shows both. And it always shows, you know, the PTS page numbers. So you can go and, you know, look through there. And, you know, if you get a reference, it's just got a PTS page number. You know, you can go and look on the website and help you find the particular sutta. So does that help? Yeah, yeah. And just to mention to listeners that that um, suttacentral.net is, um, is that resource. Um, but on the theme of numbers again, of course, this whole book is based upon numbers. Do you, what's your um, uh, understanding as to how this text came to be compiled to be organized by numbers rather than by theme or by topic? What is that, um, what's the purpose of that? Um, that's an interesting question. I think, you know, seemed like a good thing for the the compilers thought to do because you know they you know they clustered all the longer discourses in the higher and and they clustered you know the more middle length discourses in the middle and then the sangyutta was arranged um, you know according to various topics so they collect, um, collect all the suttas on you know the aggregates or the or the faculties or whatever, and then put them into groups there. Uh, and then there were still plenty of other leftover suttas. And, um, you know, in any case where they, where some sort of uh, teaching had been done by numbers, which actually occurs an awful lot, because if you think about it, it's a very common, you know, pedagogical tool. Uh, if you're lecturing and you're giving a talk on something, you'd often give a list and, you know, you tell people at the start, this is, I'm going to cover points one, two, three, four, five, and then you'd summarize that at the end. So I think it's just a common thing to do for helping organize material. And I think it's also very much part of the fact um, that all these, uh, all the Pali canon was, uh, preserved through memory and oral tradition. So numbered lists greatly helps in that sort of situation. Um, 
actually in Bhikkhu Bodhi's introduction, I think right right at the start of his introduction, he really talks about those same things which I just mentioned. The fact that it's a numerical list are a great mnemonic device, um, and uh, it's just really helps would have helped them remember. Um, and you know anything that you might think, well, you know, why, why doesn't you know some of the books have uh, some other group of numbers, but maybe that was covered thoroughly in the Sangyutta Nikaya. Yeah, I think it's probably you know fairly random to about like how they put them into different places because in the different Pali uh, traditions, as there were, as you know, as it broke up into different schools, and then we have. Um, alternatives to the Pali Canon that were preserved through Sanskrit and then in Chinese and the Chinese Agamas, the arrangement is somewhat different. You don't always find parallels to Anguttara and Nikaya Suttas in their Ekotarita Agama, which is the equivalent, but it might be in their Majjama Agama, which is equivalent to the Majjama, and so on. So there's some sort of randomness there about where they thought things might belong. And, I, you know, I also actually think, um, although it's a good way to arrange things in a book, um, it's not a very good way if one wants just reads the book straight through from start to finish. Because um, also, as Bhikkhu Bodhi points out in his introduction, they're kind of grouped in these, you know, different books uh, of in numerical grouping kind of randomly by topic. So that's why he did a really nice thing in providing the thematic guide, which gives you a better way to tackle the material because you can start with themes and approach it that way. And then maybe later on, read the whole thing from start to finish. Is that how you're doing it with the thematic guide? Are you, or are you just going, starting with the ones and then onto the twos and so on? No, we've act, we're actually using the thematic guide and clustering them, not from the beginning to the end of the thematic guide, but, but organizing it into, I organize the material based upon the theme themes, the theme groupings. I've organized it into a logical four-year course so that each mm -hmm. course was well-balanced with practical material and theoretical material and material about concentration and material about insight and virtue and that each of the the module each of the four courses had a, a balance of you know some bio, biography and some culture and some deep meditation so so that the, the it would work from a teaching perspective but i have to admit that although the although Organizing it into groupings based upon the theme does make for very coherent and in-depth conversations about those topics. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I feel like I'm turning the um, the numerical discourses into the connected discourses a little bit and missing that initial feeling. Because when I first read um, the the um, the Anguttara Nikaya, I just read it from the beginning to the end, and mm -hmm. there's Although it can feel fragmented when we just go through these different random topics, nevertheless, there is a freshness and a kind of adventure and surprise that we don't know, we don't have any idea what's going to come next. I know, you do get nice surprises, don't you? I, I, that's why it is good to do it both ways. 
I've, I've only ever read it through, you know, sequentially as the um, drafts for each uh, Nipata came to me. So I've never actually read it through in the thematic way. So I feel I'd like to do that now. Um, although, you know, since I actually probably read the complete book through six or seven times throughout the project, um, and I was delighted when I got the finished copy of the book, I haven't actually dipped into it and I needed a little break from it. <laughs> I'm sure it's a well-deserved break. <laughs> <laughs> but I am looking forward, you know, now to going back and uh, approaching it through, through that th thematic lens. I do poke at it sometimes when I'm looking for a topic to teach. Oh yeah, of course. I think it's a very convenient book because of the numbered lists to find themes that are um, that are 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 that that facilitate uh, an introduction to a sutta or a list or a quick and easy teaching topic that stays very close to a sutta. Yeah, I agree. Um, I am I am interested as well. Uh, because you know this, these these materials very very well. Have you found that um, that there's any themes that develop through the, the 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 collection itself? For example, I'm thinking about a comment that Bhikkhu Bodhi had made in his introduction, where he mentioned that you have surveyed the Nikayas and also created a number of tables that indicated the frequency of those mm -hmm. teachings that were about worldly aims compared to those teachings that were oriented towards an ultimate liberation. And um, so I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about um, your sense of the, the kind of content that we find in the numerical discourses of the Buddha. Were certain texts weighted more towards liberation and others more towards worldly improvements? Or what were the kinds of of uh, things that you discovered through having read it six or seven times and developed a kind of survey and overview of this collection. Right, sure. Um, just giving you uh, uh, and the other people listening some background to this, at the same time as I was uh, helping Bodhi with the translation, I was studying for a, an MA in Buddhist studies and the final year of that, I chose as my dissertation topic to do a survey, a complete survey of all the suttas in the canon, looking for all of those that were addressed specifically to lay people. So, and this survey, you know, ended up look, looking at many aspects of these suttas, you know, which, including which Nikaya had a higher proportion of suttas to, lay, to householders as opposed to mendicants, what the range of topics were, uh, you know how things played out in, uh, in the who the audience was, whether it was women or men or people of different ages or people of different classes of Indian society at that time, the Katyas, Brahmins, Lesses and Suddhas, and also to people of different spiritual attainment. Um, one of the things I did find, and this is what uh, and Bhikkhu Bodhi, he did include one, included, I, I think, a couple of tables from, you know, directly taken from my dissertation. Uh, the Anguttara does contain more suttas relatively targeted to lay people than any of the other Nikayas. 
Um, and particularly when I, when I say targeted to lay people, sometimes, you know, the Buddha in, in the sutta is um, shown as talking to monks, but he's talking about what lay people should do. So even though it's not specifically addressed to a lay person, I included that in the survey as well because it was focused, focused on topics for lay people. And there are lots of these suttas, particularly in the Anguttara Nikaya, that were targeted indirectly to lay people. Um, of the small number of suttas addressed to women, the majority of um, uh, the larger number of those is in the Anguttara Nikaya than in any of the other Nikayas. And also the Anguttara Nikaya has a larger emphasis of suttas addressed to the middle class as opposed to the, the ruling class, the Katiyas, uh, the kings and princes and so on, or the Brahmins. Um, and finally, getting back to a little bit, the, one of the points of your question, and the suttas addressed to lay people that are in the Anguttara Nikaya, there is a higher emphasis on the goals of happiness in this life and, and a good rebirth. Uh, which are goals more commonly associated with lay people in the suttas and with monastics, um, you know, as opposed to suttas on reaching nirvana, getting uh, rather than a good rebirth, getting out of the whole cycle of rebirth, etc. Even though there, are, there, there is still plenty, there is still plenty of that, but it's just there's a somewhat higher emphasis on uh, those more lay-oriented goals. Uh, there certainly was a stronger emphasis on good con good conduct by body, speech, and mind, uh, making good karma and getting and having a better rebirth. What kind of conclusions um, uh, might would you draw from that emphasis uh, towards lay people in this collection? What, what would be? Um, I, I, I think well. Probably the conclusion would be that um, uh, many, you know, he was addressing his suttas specifically to what he knew the people who were you know, addressing him or he was addressing um, what level they would be at and what was appropriate for them. So there are certainly instances, you know, where he talks to some lay people, you know, about the full goal of the Buddhist path, but the stronger emphasis on giving that to monks who have, uh, you know, taken on full renunciation uh, of, of this life. I think it is significant to uh, ref to to re really recognize that the Buddha taught people in all conditions, um, mm. men, women, lay. Uh, monastic, wealthy, poor, um, the, the 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 breadth of the people that he spoke with and whose teachings were remembered and recorded uh, is is so inspiring to me that these teachings are really not oriented only for a monastic or for somebody who has um, you know uh, abandoned the worldly. Um, commitments in lay life. Uh, so mm -hmm. I find, find it actually very uh, interesting 
to look at some of these discourses that are oriented specifically for lay people and to see, well, um, how did the Buddha teach lay people? What are the practical concerns that we can bring the Dhamma to meet? And also within the context of our daily lives, how can we free ourselves from the causes of suffering? Mm, yeah, no, I think that it is wonderful. And um, I think the Anguttara Nikaya is a bit, particularly a very prag much more pragmatic Nikaya than some of the others. And that's one of the things I like about it. And the uh, thematic guide that Bhikkhu Bodhi created, you know, really does, you know, help uh, show this. If you, you know, if you were asking, you know, what, what is it that we as Dhamma practitioners uh, can get out? Um, you know, how can we use the Anguttara Nikaya in, in, in our own practice and living? You know, it's really all there. You could, and if you look at the thematic guide, which is on page 74, 75 through 84, particular themes that I think stand out for us are um, theme four, maintaining a harmonious household, which is all about right living and right relationships. Theme five, the way leading upward, talking about faith, good friendships, generosity and ethical conduct. Theme six, dispelling the world's enchantment, understanding old age, sickness and death, uh, renunciation and getting out from under the spell of sensual attachment. And then theme seven, dealing with defilements of the mind, the roots of bad conduct, obstacle, obstacles to meditation. And then of course there's theme nine, all the suttas on meditation itself. So, you know, just, you know, focusing on those, I think is a, just a rich trove of resources for us as uh, lay householders on the Buddhist path. That's like an, that's like an outline of practice to, um, you know, develop a, a, a peaceful, harmonious, a wise relationship to the way that we live and to face the truth of aging and death, to free ourselves from, um, from the clinging and attachments and the defilements that cause suffering and to cultivate the mind for liberating insight. I mean, that's, that's the path that we're on. That's it, it's all there, it's all you need. <laughs> I wonder if um, we could, in, I'd like to invite if there are any questions from the um, other participants in this discussion in the call. Yes, I do have a question. Um, John, I'm curious if there was anything in particular that surprised you. Ah, anything that surprised me. Um, well, I think partly what I've said already, just the fact that the Anguttara, you know, has this very this very pragmatic feel, more so than the other Nikayas. Um, you know, pleasantly surprised, and you know, and I think it makes it is a wonderful Nikaya because of that. Um, I can't think of anything else off the top of my head. Is there anything that uh, surprised you as you're going through it? Oh, now that's an interesting question. Um, no, I'm 
only one year into it, so only about a fourth of the way through. Um, yes, I think the um, the range, the diversity of topics has surprised me. Mm. That um, we go, as Shiloh was saying, you know, we can go from biographical to um, liberating teachings and pretty much everything in between. And I, I somehow had not anticipated that the breadth of the topics covered would be that broad, that diverse. And it, since you mentioned um, that it, uh, the teachings were intended for pretty much all categories of people, um, I think that might have been one of the factors that um, until right now I hadn't stood out for me. Yeah, that, that's that good. Influence the diversity, that sense of diversity. Right, so di- diversity in both the topics and diversity in the intended audience. Type. Yes, yes, well put, thank you. <clears throat> no, that's good. Good question. I've been surprised by quite a few things. Um, I think there's there's some odd little suttas that one rarely ever hears about. There was one that we read just a couple of months ago that basically encouraged the monks to brush their teeth. <laughs> I remember that one. It was yeah. an odd little thing, and it um, when I read it, I thought, you know, there are so many. There are so many, there's so many discourses available to us, but it's very easy in these Dharma circles to keep quoting and referring to the same ones mm-hmm. again and again. And when I read the numerical discourses, there is such a, a, a broad range of topics that are addressed that it's all there's in every re, in every set of reading there's something fresh and unexpected for me and there's yeah. a lot of suttas in this text that i consider to be among the lesser known discourses the ones that are rarely referred to i mean they're yeah. anybody can find them and read them they're not hidden anywhere they're yeah. they're rarely referred to because frankly i just think fewer people read this book than some of the other ones. Yeah, is, is, is that a factor that it, it was the last to be translated into modern English so people are more familiar with the other ones? Or is it that it doesn't get quoted by Dhamma teachers or you know bhikkhus when they're doing teachings on the Dhamma, they don't pick things from the Anguttara? I don't, I don't know what the answer to that is. But yeah, I agree with you. There are these lovely, surprises you know things that you wouldn't always expect there are occasionally uh some nasty surprises too like um you know things that i don't think the buddha actually said that were being added in like uh, i don't remember the numbers but there are a couple of i don't know whether you've come across these yet if you do just skip right over them they're very very denigrating of women and to me, that just doesn't fit at all with all the other things that the Buddha has said. And I suspect it would be just put in there by possibly misogynistic monks or just senior monks who are trying to 
you know, encourage their junior monks to get their mind off sex. Well, we actually did just address the thematic section, I think it was a month or so ago on um, on the teachings around of, of, about about women, not necessarily for women, but about women. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it was actually, it brought out a quite interesting discussion within the group because it invited us to consider how we relate to readings like this that mm -hmm. are, um, quite counter to what we think of as Dhamma teachings and um, are not so supportive of how we live our lives. So what do we do? Do we just skip over them? Do we reject them? Do we decide that, um, that, that the Buddha didn't know what he was talking about and threw a whole book away? Do we think of it as being a, a something of a political um, you know, of, of, of something of a, of a political strategy that came after the Buddha or as an expression of the misogyny at the time of the Buddha. Um, you know, how do we, how do we, how do we understand it? I, I thought it brought out some very good discussion. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And certainly uh, you don't throw out the whole thing because I think it's quite recognized by scholars that, you know, although all the Nikayas and the material in it um, is as close as possible that we have to the original words of the Buddha, everything in there did not come from the Buddha. And we just have to recognize that, you know, we don't, don't take the Theravada hard line that, oh yeah, anything in there is absolutely uh, you know, said by the Buddha, it's like Christians being, you know, biblical literalists or something like that. These were, you know, memorized and compiled over many years. They were at different councils. They were maybe recompiled, reordered, and as possible, some, you know, sisters got thrown in by senior monks for specific purposes. As you say, just reflecting the uh, misogynistic attitudes of society, or you know, trying to help train uh, you know young male monks you know, to get their minds off the you know the sensual pleasures which they they have recently renounced and things like that. So um, you know, it's hard to know what to say, what to reject, and what not to reject, but there is just so much there that does tie together that just really feels like the authentic voice of the Buddha. You know, stick with that and then just keep an open mind about the other stuff that doesn't gel. And I also wanted to ask you if you would um, have, if you have any thoughts about how sutta study can be um, integrated with the development of the meditative development. How do you see the sutta study either informing the development of meditation or uh, becoming a meditation itself or the meditation supporting the sutta study? I'm very curious both how you find this developing um, in your own life and how you advise um, readers of the suttas and practitioners of meditation to integrate and explore the two. Right. Um, well, you know, as I, as I said uh, a little bit before, um, 
No, I think when we are Dhamma practitioners, we're not we're not just studying med meditation. It's really a whole way of life. It's really um, you know all those other things that you know are talked about in those various different themes um, in the, you know generosity, ethical ethical conduct, uh, friendship, right friendships, and all those other things. And obviously, all of those things are going to help meditation in the sense that your mind will naturally be calmer if you're living, living life in that way. But, you know, you know, meditation to me is not the goal of, of Buddhist practice. It's just a part of it. And bring, we really bring the Dhamma into our whole life. Um, so definitely, you know, if reading the suttas after one has reached a, you know, maybe a, a calmer meditative state, then might, one would find it richer. But, but, and it works, but it works both ways as you read, read the suttas. Uh, one can be inspired in different ways, uh, which can then help the meditation practice, even on those suttas that don't specifically talk at all about meditation practice. So it's, it's really the whole thing, not just not just meditation, as far as I'm concerned. Does somebody else have a question for John? Yeah, John, this is Mike. Um, got a quick question, I guess back to either your role at suttacentral.net or just in your um, exploration of the Nikayas. Um, curious, in your own personal studies, have you explored uh, much of the, the Chinese side of the, the Kotarika Agama or the, the parallels to the numerical discourses? And has that influenced your understanding or your, um, your work in any way? Uh, well, first, I don't to read Chinese, um, and sure, sure. I feel like I'm too old now to learn, and I'm extremely grateful that there are people like Bhikkhu Anale around, who are just, you know, he's just one, one of the most prolific uh, scholars, and he's you know, so many uh, languages, you know, Chinese, Pali, Sanskrit, Tibetan, and, you know, God knows what else, apart from German and English, and perhaps many other languages, but um, which also now can lead on. I might just tell you a little bit more about Sutta Central because this is really how it all got started was because of this burgeoning academic work by people like Bhikkhu Analeo and Professor Bartnell on comparing the suttas, um, you know, way, you know, maybe. Uh, in the early 20th century, a Japanese scholar had compiled a preliminary list of Chinese Agama suttas that he had found Pali parallels to. And so they used that and they were expanding it and they wanted to, a way to, to go in both directions, not just from the Chinese uh, sutras to the Pali suttas, but, but in the opposite direction. And they were brainstorming with uh, another, uh, an Australian monk, Bhante Sujato, and they talked about creating a website, and that's how suttacentral.net got created. And fortunately, I just happened to be around when these 
early discussions were going on and they were talking with a young Singaporean uh, uh, person who had skills in doing web coding that oh, my uh, computer skills are all in uh, database design. So, uh, you know, I, I came in and did the original database design and all the populating the data. And originally the purpose of Sutta Century was purely so that you could look at, you know, a list of Pali suttas and see what the Chinese parallels were or Tibetan parallels or Sanskrit parallels where they found them and vice versa and, and in all those different directions, which is what a database is good for. But what's evolved now with Sutta Central and why I think it can be useful to uh, all of the rest of you who don't read Chinese as well is that um, early on we decided to put in links on there for to English translations where we could find them on the web. So that was all done as much as possible. And now more and more um, translations are going there. And Sutta Central has lots and lots of English translations, plus translations into 18 or 20 other different languages. You know, Polish, Dutch, Sinhalese, Hindi, um, German, everything. Um, so it's now becoming a wonderful resource for just everything to do with the suttas. Um, just a couple of further things on Sutta Central, I would you know, like to mention that people might be interested in, you know, as well as, you know, finding translations up there, it's a good tool for comparing the text in English with the text in Pali, because uh, as much as possible, we keep in the same, paragraphing and you can switch from one to the other very easily. Uh, there are tools for doing that. Um, you know, I recommend for anybody in this group or who's listening to this uh, later on, go out and have a look at it, read the introduction to it on the homepage and then just play around and try different things. But um, uh, it also has uh, a terrific search engine, which is getting better and better all the time. You can put search uh, based on a Pali word, search on an English word. It does fuzzy matches uh, so that you don't always have to have the exact spelling. Um, you know, if you put in mindfulness, bring up mindful and mind and many other things. And it also has a little built-in Pali English dictionary so that you can turn that on, hover over the Pali text and see an English translation of that word. And similarly, a Chinese English. So you can, if you go to one of the Chinese texts and hover over a Chinese character, it can give you uh, some idea of what that character means. So there's lots of interesting and useful things there, you know, not just for academics, which are, which are studying this, but for all of us who want to dig into the uh, early sutras. Well, I would like to express my appreciation to you, John, for um, uh, speaking with us today and, and sharing um, your love of the suttas and of Pali um, with us. It's, and also just helping us make these, helping make these teachings available. Much appreciations. Thank you. Oh, you're most, most welcome for that. And as I said before, um, you know, I know it's all 
very much appreciated by many people, but I feel I've got so much out of doing it and I love doing it. So I'm very happy to do it. Well, for, for listeners who are interested, uh, we offer, I offer a, uh, the suit to, um, yearly suit to study course, both online and locally in the Bay Area of California. You can find the information at the Insight Meditation Staff Bay website, imsb.org. And thank you, John. And thank you, everybody, for joining the call. You're welcome. And thank you, Shyla, for all the wonderful work you are doing with this, uh, doing this sort of study group. I, th I think you're, you're a national treasure as well. So, <laughs> terrific. <laughs> thank you. Oh, bye-bye, all. Okay. Thank you, John. Okay. Bye, John. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.